to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that just got put on tenure track at a, you know, a charming, small, private liberal arts college. We're living the dream, Amanda. We're here. We're going to teach literature. We're going to have, you know, a pretty light load of responsibilities. We're not really ever going to publish anything. We're good to go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> No, no heavy burdens, no, no academic fraught, you know, conversations weighing us down. We're just here to kind of lightly talk about books and hopefully reach some youth. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm not in grad school anymore, so, so we can <laughs> take it easy mm-hmm, on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You're freed from your burdens of academia. <laughs> Has reading this book been a challenge for you in that sense? Or are you reliving things you prefer to forget? I am, actually. It's, it's lots of flashbacks right now. <laughs> yeah, that can be difficult. I, I get it. That's it's it's a work of trauma, and it's inducing in you, I'm sure, something unpleasant. But <laughs> you can always head back to those hallowed halls if you really need to. Yeah. You know, yeah. Pursue that PhD. Maybe one day. I would love to one day. Why not? Put it on. Put it on the back burner for now. But we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yeah. If you have no idea why we're wistfully talking about Amanda Simon Academia, that is because <laughs> you've stumbled upon a book club episode. These are our deep dive analytical episodes. Today's we'll be covering the first half of a novel called The Human Stain, which is by Philip Roth. If you've never listened to the podcast before, you're in a pretty good place to start, assuming you either have read The Human Stain or don't care if it gets spoiled for you, because <laughs> these are our episodes where we dive into detail, we analyze the work, and discuss it in complete openness. Uh, Again, we'll be doing the first half today. We are, as I mentioned at the top, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We have Facebook and Instagram accounts with that name, and it's all one word, all one handle, so just at the Lightly Literary Podcast. Follow us there to get updates on what we're reading, the kind of book schedule. We always try and promote a few weeks in advance. And one day, Amanda, I'll be caught up. I've threatened for so long. It's been years of threats, years of <laughs> really uh, of promises, not threats. Really, you know, it's not it's not a dangerous thing. Promises, and mm-hmm. one day I will I will come through on the promise. But yeah, check us out there. We'll be promoting our books, you know, so you can keep up and know what we're reading. Um, what are the parts we're following today? Do you call them chapters? They're much longer than that. Yeah. They, parts? Yeah, I guess parts. It's like labeled like chapters, but you're right, they are really long for chapters, yeah. So my copy, my edition is, uh, we've read basically 200 pages, and that's three of these things. Yeah. Chapters? Parts? Yeah, parts. Yeah. So today, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna go with parts. Uh, we'll be spoiling the first three, and so it goes through the chapter part called What Do You Do When She Can't Read, or When a Children Can't Read? Is that what it is? Yeah. What do Something you do like uh, with the kid who can't read? With the kid who can't read. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So we'll be spoiling that up through that section. So those three parts are on the table. The only content warning I could think of that was super obvious for this book would be racist language, yeah. though, as always, I'll be picking around those quotes anyway and won't be using any of the terminology. There's one that we might have to use because it's kind of... It's kind of the fundamental to the whole story, frankly. Right. Um, so that one might be unavoidable. The rest I'll pick around. Uh, some probably misogyny might get mentioned. And then there's definitely some stuff about violence, a person doing violence, reflecting on violence, and wishing they could do violence. So there will be some, you know, discussions of that, too. Yeah. Anything I missed that I, that stood out? <clears throat> uh, maybe some, some de- depictions of, like, PTSD. Um, so... Uh, yeah, that's what I was yeah. saying. That's the yeah. thing I'm going to be... I know I'll be talking about that part. Yeah. So yeah, PTSD as well. Yeah. Or 
kind of effects of war yeah. and violence too. Um, and yeah, the 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 whole kind of story is we'll get into part one, kind of the foundation of it is this racist term. So I think yeah. that will be used to just get. Because it's just so critical the how he interprets it, the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the rest, we can talk around pretty pretty easily. So won't be a big part of the episode, obviously. Anyway, with those out of the way, any thoughts before we jump in, Amanda, and we start analyzing this book? Nah, I'm ready. I think. Okay, let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about The Human Stain. Uh, chapter one, or part one of this book, is called Everyone Knows. We open with a pretty good tone setter and, uh, shall we call it, like an intellectual... What are the what's the term for like a, a you know a really long many course meal? There's like a food that previews the other foods. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? The, it's like you get a warm up. T- it's not an appetizer. It's like a much smaller preview taste palate setter. Um, a, is it an aperitif or is that just a yeah yeah? I was thinking something like that. Yeah, something with that the teeth part of that sounds right to me. Anyway, it's a French term, of course, that I don't know. But we open with some thoughts about Bill Clinton and Mona Lewinsky and that whole scandal that kind of en- enveloped the nation in 1998, uh, the sex scandal, power scandal. And it has nothing directly to do with the story. I mean, the characters talk about it, obviously, but it is kind of just like a thematic and kind of intellectual rigor setter because it gets you if you can't read that you should just put the book away yeah (laughs) it's like if you can't get on board with that now granted i don't think it's the best or most interesting writing in the book either so i'm being you know i'm being a little hyperbolic but it is kind of like okay this is the register this book's going to be in so if you don't want to live in that register um best to best to bail but then we actually get the proper you know plot started we have a 71 year old sorry protagonist coleman silk he is a classics professor he's a, an associate dean or you know he's not like a school president but he's you know a powerful respected dean a kind of all in all american intellectual powerhouse respectable guy and then, of course, we find out right away that he's now an accused racist as well. So this mm-hmm. is the first major conflict of the story. He, at 71 years older, I think it... When does the incident happen? 65? Yeah, because it's like... No, because he... he you know, maybe, maybe, because he quit um, a few years afterwards. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So a few years back, he's 71 when we pick up, but a few years back. And also, this, this story jumps back and forth in time without warning and quite regularly. So you have to just kind of got to get on board with the timeline, so to speak. Anyway, uh, during one of his classes, he used a derogatory term to refer to two students who he had never met before and had never been to his class. He, This is where I'll actually use the term, I think, because it's specific enough and the plot hinges on it. He refers to them as spooks because they don't show, so he means it like a ghost as if like they're specters that he never sees that he's then later told that the two students are black and that spook is a, is a derogatory term for black people it's a racist term and so th- he gets embroiled in a conflict about that and because he refuses to apologize for using that term he ends up leaving the college in kind of disgrace he's not fired though which is a crucial thing it it goes into some depth about you know his colleagues are kind of against him and people don't want to stand with him you know there's indignities about like well he's done so much for the college but no but he will support him now when he needs them, etc. It feels to him like a really minor scandal, but it's enough to 
kind of disgrace him and, and then he leaves. So that's kind of what we get from him at the opening. Did I miss anything from the incident? I'm off. Uh, the other thing I should say, should have said this before we started our summary. It's really a dense story and it's very internal. Um, and so the summarizing the plot is not hard, <laughs> but it's hard to. I know I'm skipping just a ton of character stuff because. It's so much of this is just character work and not there's not like a lot of action, you know, in the in the most typical description. Yeah, and uh, the narrator in the first part is actually a writer who's like, yeah, a, like a, a loner. Yeah. <clears throat> Which changes throughout the rest of the text, kind of like the, mm-hmm. the narrator changes. But yeah, and um, I think it's important to point out that at least according to Coleman, um, our main character he did a lot to improve the college, including yeah. hiring the very same people that turned against him. Um, right. So there's an extra layer of betrayal because he's like devoted so much of his time and effort into this. And these are people that he himself hand chose to lead mm-hmm. the college. We get in a later chapter apart, we get a kind of in-depth look at how that kind of works or how that worked. But yeah, so it's, yeah, he, he was certainly esteemed. He was a very powerful person and seemingly, as he would tell it, quite evenly respected in the school, did a lot of good work for it. And then the scandal, yeah, kind of forced him out. The, the probably most horrific outcome of it all is the stress and the kind of just burden of the whole conflict it ends up killing his wife, or that's how he tells it to himself and his family. So she just had health complications. There was no direct, you know, melodramatic violence, but she just dies from, I guess, yeah, from stress or just the, the general intensity of this whole thing. Uh, later, he confesses to his neighbor, the, the author you're talking about, that he has since, since his wife's passing, struck up an affair with a 34, I think think or it's 30 something yeah. is she 34 she's pretty okay. young yeah yeah 34 and he's 71 just to say that again a 34 year old janitor at the formal college at athena college she also works at the post office where she met him or he, he met her and this scandal's connection which the first part spends a lot of time investigating has really reinvigorated him which is the right word i think mm-hmm. it's the yep. what, what's a more subtle sexual pun i could use i don't know revitalized um yeah i don't know yeah. Should I just should we pause the podcast to go watch Viagra ads and then pick a couple <laughs> just pick a couple taglines because it's ba- he's basically living in a Viagra commercial essentially you know yeah he is and yeah he's he's got just enough vigor left in him to make this uh, really intense affair mm-hmm. and it's also kind of caused him to reconsider his life a bit he was going to publish a two year researched kind of book screed hate filled text against the college and you know he was lining up his enemies to take revenge in textual form. But he, it's calmed him down, basically. Like, he doesn't want to do that anymore. He kind of has a huge change of heart because of this affair. There's another crucial complication, though, in part one. This will probably be the last thing I'll hit for the just the plot summary. Uh, Fawnia is her name. Is it Fawnia? Yeah, you know Fawnia. Fawnia. Okay. You know, like a, like a fawn, like a doe or whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Fawnia's ex-husband is a Vietnam War veteran who is suffering from, and I put this in all caps, uh, severe PTSD extreme and his moment in the book is quite quite intense because uh, we do get his point of view for a few pages and so he's also been stalking Fania for a long time and then he begins to stalk this secretive couple because they're trying to keep it um, trying to keep it anonymous in the town they're in and at home and so there's a little bit of a conflict there where he kind of you know almost gets into blows with 
Coleman at home. So that's probably the last meaningful thing in this in this part. Mm-hmm. Anywhere you want to start. Anything that I missed? Because summarizing this book is a fool's errand. Truly, <laughs> no, there's just so much, so yeah, much to to get through. Yeah. Yeah, it's dense, and like I said, it's I could do the plot in a in a sentence, but the character stuff is. Uh, extremely in depth and yeah. and has you know a million nuances, but that I think is where we'll start. Yeah, everything is very analysis heavy in this book. Like we we ourselves don't have to do it. Coleman himself does a lot of the the analysis for us, or mm-hmm. uh, uh, just you know obviously he's he's um what was the classics like Greek and um. Greek classics professor Greek and and what was the other Greek and something yeah, classics. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, Latin, I guess. He just teaches, yeah, the, the old Greek and Roman stuff. Yeah. It's, he's a classics professor. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, so he does a lot of the analysis for us, which which is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> let's dive into some a- analysis then. What do you want to start with? There's a, so much. The other thing that's odd about this book, this is where our new, you know, do a summary, analyze, do it. This is where this format to me fails hard mm-hmm. because, I don't know, there's like a million things we could <laughs> talk about. It's very yeah. dense with ideas and things. So yeah. it's like, I don't even, I mean, I picked my the things that, that were most noteworthy to me, but what do you want to talk about? For for me, the um the, the giant paragraphs in the in the very beginning there <laughs> actually maybe mm-hmm. is it just one long paragraph no nah, it's like yeah it might paragraphs. be the paragraphs in this book are routinely over a page long <laughs> yeah um but about the the mindset of america in 1998 which is when this story takes place um or the meat of the story takes place um but the paragraphs about bill clinton and like the the role of um like his affair with Monica Lewinsky and the mindset of America in dealing with the the fallout from that. I, I found mm-hmm. it interesting, but it was like the way that he worded it was also just sometimes a bit to slog through. Like I had to reread a few of those sentences a couple of times just because I was like, wait, 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 wait. So he's, this is what he really means by this. <laughs> it's... yeah. It was very densely put, but I understood the the main idea, which is, you know, the puritanical and hypocritical attitude of Americans towards right. um, people in power, which then also sets up, you know, Coleman Silk's <clears throat> own situation, which is also, like, pretty interesting that his situation is compared to, like, Bill Clinton's situation, which is, like, a sense of grandiosity there on his part, I think, but... Yeah. Yeah. These these great wronged men who you know were doing such good, but were brought low by this you know debatably. Yeah. Anyway, of course that's all in their own telling. It's not my opinion of the matter, but yeah, to hear their telling of it, they're you know brought low by these unjustified attacks. Yeah, it's thematically quite resonant because of like you just drew out all the parallels. Were there any? Was there any language in it that you that upon reflection you wanted to pick out or anything? Because it's. I will say that, um, and I guess I'll get this point out now, I I wasn't sure when this would come up. I'm finding this book so, and this is going to reveal a lot about me, I don't know if I want to out myself like this in the pod, Um, so weirdly readable, and it's just objectively not readable, like I know that, (laughs) I'm not, I'm not like head in the sand, but I find that when I get into it, if when I finally break in, 
the, the kind of meandering intellectualism, which I've let go since college, I, I guess, I think, I don't really read things like this all the time anymore, especially not nonfiction. I don't read, you know, in the academic register anymore. Right. But I will say I slipped back into it quite comfortably and was, I don't know if I should be ashamed of that or whatever, but I find this, like, once I get going with it, there have definitely been moments, for example, part two, with his backstory where I was like, come on, this could be 30 less, 30 fewer pages. I don't know. Yeah. Some, some of it, like when it gets off track or uh, I know how critical that is to the story, by the way, we'll get to that. But I, some moments have dragged me down for sure. But like when Coleman is narrating these long pages of him just kind of as this intelligent man, but who's been wronged and is also, you know, kind of in, a, in many ways, loathsome in many ways, just this panicked like super dignified old man, but is at such a strange crossroads. I find it like really engrossing. I don't know. I think, I know it's maybe problematic just cause it's so unreadable, but, um, yeah, I've enjoyed it weirdly, like a lot. When I when I found myself getting into it, it's it's also hard to like look at it on your bookshelf or on your nightstand and be like, uh, is, is, do I have an hour right now? Like, can I really give this an hour? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's intimidating, I guess. It's <laughs> it's funny too because we we just finished reading Dubliners and James Joyce is in his novels. He's like renowned for. Uh, or perhaps notorious for uh, for mm-hmm. using overly verbose words. And then we come to this and I'm like expecting, I've never read Philip Roth before. And I'm like, Oh, it's a contemporary American novel. Okay. This will be easy to read. And I'm like, this is so much more um, dense and, and uh, Mm -hmm. verbose than Dubliners, which, which is just like a, coming off of Dubliners where you have certain expectations about the language being used and then you come to this and you're like, whoa! <laughs> like, it definitely took yeah. me, like, the when I first read these chapters, uh, the first um, part and the Bill Clinton paragraphs at the very beginning setting the tone there, I was like, it, it definitely took me longer to get through these first three or four pages because I was just, like, not in that headspace. But yeah. once I got going and I, I kind of, like, went back into, like almost back to to university where you're reading a lot of classics where you have a lot of this these big words that sometimes you're just like oh man I don't even know what that word means or I don't know this illusion like I need to look up this illusion so that I can completely understand um the the similarity here <clears throat> once I got into that mode I was like I was fine with it it was it was okay um and I understand why he does it too i'm what does he write like this in his other i know you've read another novel by him yeah i read american pastoral i was really big into john updike in college another really problematic author of the same time period and i would say they have a lot stylistically in common mm-hmm. um and have since been they, they've lived very kind of well not troubled personal lives but a bit controversial and they, they both are notorious for not writing women very well mm-hmm. which we can maybe get into in this book too but anyway, they reminded me of each other. I read, I think, yeah, one Philip Roth novel, and maybe he wrote some short stories, too. I'm sure those snuck their way in. But it reminds me of that sort of, like, he's, he, too, you can tell as a college professor. And there's just a different, when you're in the academic world and then you're also writing, I just think you can always tell, in a sense. It's yeah. like it, there is just a difference in expectation of it. And maybe it is as simple as diction, you know, or, or like you picked up on, like, syntactically, this book 
you know, there's no, it's lawless out here. It's, we can, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll hone in on a couple of things, but it's, it's clear that he's going to be, he's going to take as much time as he wants for a sentence to happen. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you just have to slip back into the, the register of it. It is strange though, because I know how unrecommendable this is, but also reading it, you know, I'm like, yes, I remember the feeling of reading books like this. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it slips, it slips onto me pretty simply. The other thing I would say is because it's so dense, I don't feel bad, weirdly. So think of it this way, too. This is We'll get back to the first part. I know we're kind of rambling widely, but whatever. It's how it goes. Um, here's what I'll say, too. Sometimes when I read books like this, this is how I think of them. I think of if you had to write a paper about this book with almost any prompt or lens or whatever. Because of its density, don't you think you could argue just about anything you wanted with the book? Oh, for sure. <laughs> so it's like, that. that's the other thing, too. When I read paragraphs like this... I don't feel bad if I feel like I missed something because I'm already thinking about 30 things and it's like, well, if I miss 35, who gives a shit? Like, mm-hmm. I don't... <laughs> if it's engaging enough, if it's hitting you in, in any certain way or if you're finding things to pick up on, I don't feel like guilt in a book like this about missing something, you know? Which which to me is a mode I feel way more comfortable in when I read something than like The Midnight Library, which I know we both we both criticize pretty harshly. But it's yeah. like, with that book, if I, if I got to the end of that book and feel like I misread it, I feel like ashamed of myself because it's so <laughs> in the, your face. <laughs> this yeah. book, I think, has a couple clear themes on its mind, but also veers off so frequently and, you know, has these little character interludes that we'll get to. And I just think that opens it up so in such a grand wave to interpretation that I'm just like, well, yeah, I'm going to experience this book how I need to. You know, if I was writing a paper, I would I would pick my lens and not feel uncomfortable, you know, thinking about it that way and just keep it moving. Like, I guess you just have to accept that, I guess, that your readings will escape you for sure in something like this because it's just written that way. Yeah, it's just how it is. Yeah. Uh, let me hit a couple of specifics. So one, I pick, I kind of went high-low on each of these parts. Let me give you a high. I think the interlude with Fania's ex-husband is really striking, uh, and I will avoid the racist language he deploys frequently throughout it, but I just want to read a, at least a couple sentences, a couple sentences, rather, of, like, this man's kind of mindset when he gets back, um, gets back from the Vietnam War. He's, again, suffering extreme PTSD. Mm-hmm. So he comes, also, we should say, in a, in a bit of melodrama, he goes to stalk her one night she's having sex in a truck outside of their apartment or her apartment and in the meantime inside her children because of some misplaced heater uh burn the apartment down and die and she's like not aware of it because she's having sex in this truck and the husband or this like very furious husband arrives and finds it like literally carries his dead children out of this apartment building and so her negligence is like you know drives him to almost like murder anyway uh from page 69 on mine a couple quotes from his like very long one paragraph but 10 page long like internal monologue Uh, a couple things he's thinking about Uh, they train you for a year then they try to kill you for a year and when you're just doing what they trained you to do that is when they fucking put the leather restraints on you and shoot you full of shit he did what they were training him to do and while he was doing that his fucking wife is turning her back on his kids he should have killed them all when he could him especially the boyfriend he should have cut their fucking heads off he doesn't know why he didn't better not fucking come near him if he knows where the fucking boyfriend is he'll kill him so fast he won't know what hit him and they won't know what did it because he knows how to do it so that no one can hear 
spirit because that's what the government trained him to do. He's a trained killer thanks to the government of the United States. He did his job. He did what he was told to do and this is how he fucking gets treated. They get him down in the lockup ward. They put him in the bubble. They send him to the fucking bubble and they won't even cut him a check. For all this, he gets fucking 20%. 20%. He put his whole family through hell for 20%. Even for that, he has to grovel. So tell me what happened, they say, the little social workers, the little psychologists with their college degrees. Did you kill anyone when you were in Vietnam? Was there anyone he didn't kill when he was in Vietnam? Wasn't that what he was supposed to fucking do when they sent him to Vietnam? Fucking kill? Well, then I'll pause there because it's just racist, you know, racist ramblings from there. Um, So I don't know if the swearing works totally. I don't know if Roth is as comfortable writing like a furious person. I think he's, he's more comfortable writing a furious intellectual who can you know, like talk above somebody and, and, you know, clearly what's the, what's the word I'm looking for when you, you know, it's like you're condescend. Yeah. When you Mm -hmm. can condescend, but I will say that there were moments and maybe I didn't pick the best quote to show it where this narrative veers off and it kind of, this man has these little tangents of violence. And then there's little moments of real honesty and kind of truthfulness too, about the abandonment he's feeling. Yeah. But then of course, then he, but then he'll swing back and, fantasize about killing his wife again or his ex-wife again or he'll insert all that racist language as he did and then he he talks about how much he loved and relished the violence how he like enjoys kind of being a killer but of course now has nowhere to apply his trade back home and it's just so messy and it is of course very different and direct um if we did kind of a light rhetorical analysis on this it's just so much more upfront and brisk than the rest of the book and so Mm. I think these experimental moments have really worked. I'm not sure how you read him. Yeah, so there's um, <clears throat> two things that um, uh, really stuck out to me with this long rambling for him. Um, one is that he, even though it's in um, his voice, the ex-husband's voice, he does not say I, he says he the entire time, which is uh, mm-hmm. later yeah. on we see the... Um, the stream of consciousness of Fania who does actually use the personal I in hers. So I think that's Mm -hmm. really important and it shows the disassociation with the ex-husband, which is another um, component of PTSD for a lot of people too. Um, Yeah. So I thought that was interesting and also meant to, to make it seem more impersonal as him kind of not actually wanting to deal with, which is why perhaps he does the, the meandering thoughts of these personal insights that then immediately he tries to, he goes back to a violent mindset when he does make some insightful comments. Um, so I thought he did that really well. Mm-hmm. And as far as like the, the language choice too, is I, I find that very interesting because language is definitely a motif in this um, book. Like uh, his, Coleman's choice in language is what got him in trouble, but then he stresses that as he was growing up, his dad was very much like, you should always um, use the correct word here. You should always, you know, be very particular about the language that you use. And then this is also told from a writer's perspective who is supposed to be a master of language as well. What's interesting to me is that in in this, um, the as you said, the depictions of violence and the the language, the use of like all the swear words, <clears throat> and and the racist remarks as well. It's it seems not as well controlled as say um, in his Bill Clinton um, paragraphs at the beginning. There, he talks about um, the 
the sexual acts going on between Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, but he's very crass in the way that he describes that. Um, and mm-hmm. actually, each time Bill Clinton has Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky have come up in this novel, it's been very, uh, very crass. I don't know how else to put that. Yeah. It's vulgar um, in a lot of ways too. Um, so uh, I'll give you a quick example, actually, from the. Um, from the Bill Clinton, it says, uh, here we go. 98 in New England was a summer of exquisite warmth and sunshine and baseball, a summer of mythical battle between a home run God who was white and a home run God who was brown. And in America, the summer of an enormous piety binge, a purity binge, when terrorism, which had replaced communism as the prevailing threat to the country's security, was succeeded by cocksucking and a virile, youthful, middle-aged president with a brash, smitten 21-year-old employee carrying on in the Oval Office, like two teenage kids in a parking lot revived America's oldest communal passion, historically perhaps its most treacherous and subversive pleasure, the ecstasy of sanctimony. So you get what I like about that sentence is like you have the idea of the ecstasy of sanctimony. I was like, oh, that's kind of nice. And um, but then you also have the word cocksucking, like right in the middle of that entire sentence and that thought. Um, Mm -hmm. So the and I think that actually. uh, the, he likes to play with with because se- sex and sexuality and and sensuality in this this novel are also things that continuously come up, um, but kind of embracing the um, the shock value of certain words uh, versus the high minded academic, and then also you have this uh, these violent images and and violent urges. Um, against, well, in in this sense, the ex-husband's violence against a wife who is uh, highly sexual and his his hatred of her sexuality, which is pretty symbolic as well. I I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it also comes up later, the Clinton Clinton affair, the Clinton scandal. I don't don't know what the term is we use nowadays to label it anyway. (laughs) But... It it is you're right, and I think it, it is important to his character Coleman's because I, I guess when you deal with the classics, which are often so brutal, violent, sexual, and then you know really poetic and beautiful, and are held up as kind of like pinnacles of achievement, right, with mm-hmm. the arts or with language or whatever. I think it's kind of his approach, right, is to be really eloquent but brusque, and this causes problems later with like one of his colleagues and a student and everything. It also kind of gets at the heart of the again the term I'll use again. It was spooks just to just because again it's important that the debate of that language the kind of ambiguity of the term the uncommonness of it his interpretation of it obviously we find out in part two that he is black which we'll, we'll get to in a second yeah <laughs> which obviously complicates things enormously that it all kind of you know coalesces around him in a really for him frustrating way but it's yeah it represents something for sure about him in language let's do one more bit i have one more thing from this part from part one though i know we're going on long 
this is my this I picked like kind of a low moment or something. I just was like, oh, come on, Roth. What, what are we doing? It's when he <laughs> describes the cows. Do you remember the cows, Amanda? No, I don't. Do you remember milking cows? Oh, uh, right. yes. Yes, I do remember. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Yeah. Fania, appropriately enough, his paramour, the, his volupus. Is that what's the yeah. goddess? Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming where voluptuous comes from. I didn't do the research on that just because I assumed it was true. But anyway, uh, when when his neighbor, when the novelist comes to see Coleman and they watch her milk cows for him, he picks up three gallons a week just to see her milking cows. <laughs> this is how this is how this reads. Uh, I'm just going to read this paragraph here because, man, it's I can't believe I'm about to read this on a podcast. I can't ever run for political office now that I read this out loud. This is it. I'm do- doing myself in anyway. Um, yeah, it's, I heard that afternoon, and whom Coleman identified it his, it's Voluptus, I'll go with Voluptus. The carnally authoritative looking creatures, cows, were those with the bodies that took up all the space, the creamy colored cows with the free swinging girder like hips and the barrel wide paunches, and the disproportionately cartoonish milk swollen udders, the unagitated, slow moving, strife free cows, each a 1500 pound industry of its own gratification. Big-eyed beasts for whom chomping at one extremity from a fodder-filled trough while being sucked dry at the other by not one or two but three but four pulsating, untiring mechanical mouths for whom sensual stimulus simultaneously at both ends was their voluptuous due. Each of them deep into a bestial existence, blissfully lacking in spiritual depth, to squirt and to chew, to crap and to piss, to graze and to sleep. That was their whole raison, I don't know, it's some French term. Raison d'être. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have you ever heard cows described in this manner, Amanda? Has it ever been done before? Is this the only time? <sighs> Not that I've ever seen, but I mean, some people are into it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I, the book certainly isn't signing off on bestiality, but I, apparently Roth just could not contain himself. This is the this is the analogy point. This is the metaphorical point for. You know, embodying sensual pleasure and living. I mean, and the funny thing is, you know, I could pick three things out pretty easily that I really like about that paragraph that I find clever or interesting. But then you just have to take a big picture view sometimes with authors like this who have honed their words well and can, you know, they can sell you something that they can sell you something cheap, but make it look expensive. And with quotes like that, you just have to do that, you know, because it's like, oh, yeah, there's like three or four turns of phrase in there I really like. And then I have to be like, come on, this is but to what end? So you can talk about how cows are you know, in the embodiment of sexual, sensual pleasure. Like let's, yeah. let's, let's rein it in a bit here. <laughs> yeah. It's just odd. Yeah. yeah. And, and I can just tell you, no woman wants to be compared to a cow. So <laughs> it does seem unlikely a 1500 beast of sensual, of pure sensual pleasure getting, what did it say? Did it say they're getting sucked off by just like, <laughs> pretty much. Phrase, yeah. I'm just like, man, I, I can't tell It's It's hard to parody it. It writes its own parody almost, you know, that's the, yeah, that's the odd thing about some of these some of these lines. Okay, let's move to part two because we sh- we surely can't keep going like this <laughs> because I want to go have my day after this is yeah. over. <laughs> There's just so much to analyze. Um. Yeah, go. Yeah, take us into part two. Part two is called slipping the punch, um, which is I guess a boxing term. Mm-hmm. Um, this chapter is a big old flashback of Coleman's life, and a big surprise. Which we've men- you mentioned already is that he's actually black. Um, he grew up in New Jersey with two siblings, Walt and Ernestine, and a nurse mother and optician father. 
he was an optician, but he ends up working in a dining car. Um, and there's a whole explanation for that. Uh, Coleman is class valedictorian um, and a great amateur boxer. However, his parents have expectations for him that Coleman bucks against. Um, expectations including no boxing, <laughs> going to Howard University, having a steady, prestigious job, and having a happy domestic life. Um, there's a lot of friction between Coleman and his father, who is a huge fan of Shakespeare, especially Julius Caesar. In fact, all yeah. of his kids' middle names are characters from Julius Caesar, like Coleman's middle name is Brutus, which is yep. interesting because Brutus is the betrayer, right? Um, yeah. Coleman goes to Howard, but is victim to a racist slur for the first time in his life. Um, it should I should note that when, where he grew up in New Jersey, Orange Orange, is it Orange City or Orange County? Anyway, <clears throat> Orange something. I forget. Yeah. Orange Town. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah, a small town in New Jersey. Yeah, um, it's it's uh, the school that he went to. Um, a lot of the people that he actually associated with were um, uh, were Jewish. So, like in the boxing ring and in um, the school and the salutarian, um, salutarian, salut. The, is it salutatorian? Salutatorian. The, like the person who get, I think the person who gets second. Yes. You know, in the in the old rankings. Yeah. So not the valedictorian, but the one behind him. Um, yeah. These are all um, uh, people of Jewish descent, and which is why he uh, and he's so light skinned that he passes as Jewish rather than black. Yeah, um, critical to his life's development exactly. that he can do this. Yeah. Um, so the, going to Howard is the first time that he experiences um, racism like so blatantly he's he's had to deal with it his whole life but in like a, a i think he described it as like simmering underneath um but this is the first time he's just been like full-on um just called really something terrible so this leads to a deeper insight for him about um what he deems personal freedom um, and his father dies, which allows him to join the Navy, and he reinvents himself. He adopts a policy of not revealing his race and allowing people to come to their own conclusions, which he continues to adopt when he goes to NYU after he gets out of the Navy. Love to love to reinvent myself in the American military apparatus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great place to I feel, <laughs> I feel like a little sly bit of uh, you know re recruiting. They don't yeah. have to. They don't have to ha hawk around high schools anymore. They can, you know. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So it's like, yeah, that that is his transcendent moment, yep. being like, yeah, I guess I can change my navy papers. Yep. Anyway, um, he meets Stina, a woman of Icelandic and Danish ancestry, and falls in love. After a couple of years of dating, he takes her home to meet his mom and and siblings, not bothering to reveal to either his family or Stina the fact that he's in a relationship. He's in a, a relationship with somebody of a different race, uh, so that. And he was... doesn't tell his girlfriend, who he goes at many lengths narr narratively, narr narratorially, to describe as like a white Midwesterner who is descended of very very white people. Yeah, uh, it talks about all the countries of origin. I, f I forget them all. It's like yeah. Dan Danish or Swedish. Yeah, Iceland and yeah. But yeah, it oh. doesn't does not tell her before going home that his family's black yeah. and, and, and has led her to believe that he is Jewish. Yep. Or at that point, was he even... He, the, I forget. I, he, it was he, like a no, don't ask, don't tell, but with race for yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, because he doesn't has no appearance to to tip anyone off. I right. guess it's. I guess it's later that he explicitly says like I am Jewish when he's not. Right. 
Got it. Um, okay. When he tells his kids that they're from Russian, uh, a Russian Jewish background. Right, um, right. Everything seems to go well at this meeting, but Stina ultimately says that she just can't do it um, and runs away. Coleman eventually dates again and meets Ellie, who is an attractive black woman, and he experiences a kind of freedom with her in that he doesn't have to worry about his secret, but after meeting Iris, who is a Jewish woman with extremely curly hair, he decides to marry Iris for the security of his secret. Um, in order to main his, yeah. maintain his secret from Iris, he cuts all ties with his family, which is pretty brutal for his mother in particular. But she handles it surprisingly well. Well, with a two-hour takedown, you know, <laughs> yeah. handles it well as in, you know, she totally excoriates him for two hours and then lets him lets <laughs> <Yeah>. him go, <laughs> just like get the fuck out of here. And then, you know, and then of course we assume afterwards or have to assume that she probably broke down a bit to his brother because yeah. his brother follows up. So. Yeah, and it's like, don't you ever show your face, your yeah. lily white face. That's where that that we see that phrase twice actually in this book. Yeah, he turns it back around. Mm-hmm. Anything yeah. else from part two? Did we miss anything? I I think that's the the. Main I think it is. Bit, right? Yeah. Oh, I will say a couple things jumped out to me, but let's since we just kind of briefly talked about it, let's talk about the conversation with the, with his mother. Probably the yeah. most striking part of this entire section, and really, again, I this is the section that bogged me down the most, just because, one, it took my brain a few pages to even understand the twist that was happening, because it's so sudden and, like, obviously out of left field that you're just like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I thought I misunderstood the entire story about how the family tried to bribe him, you know? The Jewish family was trying to bribe his family to fail a class, right? and I, I thought I misunderstood the whole thing backwards. I was like, well, wait, he's the Jewish one, his family's trying to bribe, and then, of course, my brain comes around and is like, oh, I didn't even, okay, <laughs> that's the twi- that's the secret, that's the twist. Yeah. Anyway, that his family is black. Um, yeah, obviously critical to how the conflict went in part one. I mean, to twist the whole thing. But anyway, yeah, this is what his mom says to him. I think it's the the final thing she speaks to him, and it's really critical to understanding his development. She says, I don't know why I'm not better prepared for this, Coleman. I should be. You've been giving fair warning almost from the day you got here. You were seriously disinclined even to take the breast. Yes, you were. Now I see why. Even that might delay your escape. There was always something about our family, and I don't mean color. There was something about us that impeded you. You think like a prisoner. You do, Coleman Brutus. Your whitest know and you think like a slave so it's you know obviously really quite a brutal criticism and in terms of his his turn in terms of the choices he makes in life to turn his back on this this heritage and background like for that to be one of the final things she says to him I don't know. I, how do you apply that quote to the rest of the narrative? It's obviously like in terms of commenting on race and being a critique of these choices he's made, it's really, it's already on its face, really harsh and perhaps insightful. But how do you apply that to the rest of the story so far? Do you think that these things are coming true that he has? I mean, he certainly, as a pr- accomplished professor, he's got a bit of a privilege about him, obviously. He refuses yeah. to bend to criticism. He refuses to accept that he d- made a mistake, that he, you know, misspoke, or that not that he misspoke but that his speech could have been interpreted you know harmfully or done damage so it's like i can see the privilege part the think like a slave thing is fascinating do you think that is shown up in the narrative in any way 
the the term when she uses the word slave that was what really jumped out to me especially because this chapter he keeps mentioning the idea of personal freedom and to him personal freedom means not being a part of that community right and being able to kind of like choose who he wants to be that's the idea of personal freedom but i think it's important mm-hmm. that to the to his mother it's like you're actually a slave to the idea of your of turning your back on your race so in, yeah. in, he's actually not going to have personal freedom and he's not because he's he's like beholden to this secret for the rest of his life or you know because then he'd have to reveal it to his kids and to his you know it's just something that's built up over time so i think that it's pretty insightful and i think that it's it's an important contrast to to his arguments about personal freedom yeah because he he goes on a bit of a tangent in this section i forget where i didn't pull the quote but it's almost you know it's almost ecstasy to him this idea of being like unburdened and having true individuality or having true individualism in in a world that otherwise would constrain him right and so I think, yeah, it's unsurprising going back to part one then that this this racist language kind of kerfuffle, something that frankly, it's almost funny because my reaction in part one was kind of like, I can't believe this whole story is going to be based on this such a minor thing. And I know on camp- college campuses, these things, criticisms can kind of blow out of proportion or something. People getting, you know, really glom onto stuff, I guess. But it's like one apology clears this up in about 10 seconds, you know. Oh, I never met these people and that I didn't mean it like that. Okay you know i'm sorry <laughs> but he just refuses to you know he instead he'd rather give the oxford dictionary definition and go on a 10 minute screed about why his use of language is is the right one or or whatever he wants to say right um so yeah i think his this sort of building himself up as this individual is so it's really thematically crucial um what about the section stood out to you what do you want to talk about uh, so yeah, that was one thing that I wanted to talk about as well was was just the scene with his mom and and how it's so funny like it's supposed to be like this emotional scene and it is emotional for her. I mean like he says that he's murdering her um, by cutting her out of his life, but at the yeah. same time they both approach it so intellectually like she doesn't break down. Um, instead, she just you know uses language against him and and he doesn't break down he doesn't cry or anything like that and he's you know he's very matter of fact about i just i thought that was just so so interesting that something that should be an extremely emotional scene ends up being academically handled in a way Mm -hmm. yeah 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 and his time his time at howard too I thought that was also pretty meaningful mm-hmm. because obviously it's the other joining the Navy is what, you know, literally lets him change his race and just, you know, reinvent himself in the most clear sense. But he has such a negative response at Howard and hates it. Um, on page 106, these are some of his thoughts on it. Um, he hated Howard from the day he arrived and within the week he hated Washington. Oh, wait, I skipped around. Sorry. Um, 
especially when he began to think there was something of the, and I'm just going to skip because he gets called the, the most common racist term. I'm just going to skip over it. Yeah. Um, cause he, he deploys it a lot here. Cause it's what, it's what shocks him. It's one of the moments that really stuns him. Cause when he grew up in New Jersey, that was not the kind of abuse he had, he was accustomed to. Right. So being at Howard and being in DC, which I don't, <laughs> this is a small tangent, but I never considered DC the South. Do you, he calls it the South, which I guess if you're from like up North further, it might seem, but I, the hearing that I was like, man, that's such a weird thing to say. I don't think of DC as the South at all. Yeah. I think it is technically, well, where's the Mason Dixon line? Cause I know, um, I, some, I think it cuts through Virginia or something. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's Maryland. <laughs> I think Maryland is considered the South. Isn't gotcha. It? So yeah, I can yeah. see that. I think it's just because of how close it is to Philly that, and then it's just like, well, Philly's close. I guess I just lump all them together. I know they're they can be further apart, but I feel like you can just hop between all those big cities. And then, so it's like from DC, where's the next big city? Is it Charlotte then? <laughs> it's like where we, you know, where we're at. It's, I don't know. I, I guess I just have never thought of it as being very Southern, but yeah, I, I think it was, you know. It is anyway, technically, yeah, the Mason-Dixon line is, um, is between Pennsylvania and Maryland. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, it, it is the South, certainly to him. Um, but he talks about even to the kids in his dorm room who had all sorts of new clothes and money in their pockets and in the summertime didn't hang around the hot streets at home, but went to camp. And not Boy Scout camp out in Jersey Sticks, but fancy places that they rode horses and played tennis and acted in plays. What the hell was a cotillion? Where was Highland Beach? What were these kids talking about? He was among the very lightest of the light-skinned in the freshman class, lighter than even his tea-colored roommate, but he could have been the blackest, most benighted field hand for all they knew that he didn't. He hated Howard from the day he arrived, and within the week, he hated Washington. And so in early October, when his father dropped dead serving dinner on the Pennsylvania Railroad dining car, he Coleman went home for the funeral, told his mom he's finished with college. You know, she pleads for him not to, and he ignores her. I just want to pick up on the... So there's like this obviously race component to... There's an appearance aspect to it about how he should have a bit more privilege or freedom than others, but doesn't seem to. There's also Howard is an elite school. It's an elite mm-hmm. institution. So he bucks against that, too, and doesn't feel like he belongs there. His father obviously wants him to go to get into, you know, break into that world to become either, a, you know, intellectual black man or some kind of person of really real important standing or economic standing or something. And, yeah, it just... Um, I thought it was really telling, too, because, again, how he'll kind of rebel continuously, and he's just very very prideful, very determined. It's it's a pretty important split for him. Any other thoughts on his, his split with his father, his, I don't know, relationship with his mom or family? Any other thoughts on this one? Yeah, it's, um, uh, for me, it's interesting, too, that he bucks against the expectations of his parents and, and, and touts the idea of, like, personal freedom, but ultimately... He does get married. He does settle down. He does go into mm-hmm. academia. Like, he does the things that his parents wanted him to, but because he's turning his back on all the things that he was raised with, like, the, you know, he turned his back on his family and turned his back on his community, that he's separated from them, but he still lives the way that they wanted him to. I just find that really interesting that ultimately mm-hmm. he still ends up doing the thing that he was trying to like buck against in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it does obviously I think we'll we'll learn this, but these things from your history kind of come back to haunt you. It's a pretty common pretty common motif, I think, throughout the book. Anything else from part two? Which 
I found the slowest to read, but I think it's just because the backstory was, of course, crucial, but I, I don't know. I mean, and obviously very nuanced in ways that we can't cover and we'd have, we'd need the five hour podcast to get it that done. But I just for some reason, it just didn't feel as propulsive to me. I was just like, can I just get back to I want to know more about the, the modern day scandal. Anything else from it? Um, no, um, I'm going to talk about Stina's poem later. Um, his analysis gotcha. of that later. Yeah. So. Gotcha. Yep. We'll save it. Let's move to part three then, which is, or chapter three, however you're calling it, which is what do you do with a child who can't read or children who can't read? However, however it's phrased. The kid. Um, yeah, a kid who can't read. This section opens with another really brutal and totally unexplained at first, a contextless conversation. No, no names given, no people referenced, uh, except for briefly. And it's a really sexually explicit, kind of brutal conversation about the Bill Clinton sex scandal. So it's another time that Roth is using that to open a section and set the tone, set the thematic things. It's kind of a debate between how Clinton should have been more powerful and assertive, and there's a lot of talk about... It's kind of, you know, it's joking, but also really serious um, about kind of the act itself. And they they keep making the point that he they should have had anal sex instead, that that would have been a more assertive move. And talk, it, it's yeah, it's really um, I wish I had more. I should just Google synonyms for like sex terms. I'm trying to think <laughs> of a word that I'm not like not lasci- I'm thinking of some lascivious or lascid. I, there's some word I'm trying to think of, but it's yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just kind of gross, I guess. Um, but <laughs> it's Coleman, as it turns out, eavesdropping. So he's back at Athena College campus, and he's eavesdropping on people that he doesn't look at, but he surmises are young professors or adjuncts or whatever, because, you know, they're having, it's a somewhat intellectual conversation, but it's also extremely misogynist, so there's that, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't really dwell on it, and in fact, he kind of agrees with it. He's, he, I think he almost, at one point, his reflection is, I wish these men would have been here to defend me when I was, you know, disgraced. <laughs> so that's where Coleman's head's at. That's, that's how he's thinking. Um, he then sees Fania on campus who is enjoying lunch with her co-workers who are all younger men, a critical part of jealousy for him. Um, he gets a bit jealous then and kind of has a reflection about their differences. We also then get some narrative from her point of view, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure. So she, we get her kind of mind inside her mind as she's having this lunch. Um, that combo of jealousy plus some well-timed flashbacks to him spending time with his kids, including a daughter who works as a reading teacher. That's where the title of the chapter comes from. Those things are enough to push him to make a phone call on campus. He goes to a payphone, and he calls his most reasonable son. Both of his older sons, I think, are scientists or something. They live on the West Coast. Maybe they're also academics. And he wants to call off the affair. He wants to call them to tell him that it's over, and I don't know what you've heard about this, but it's I'm calling it off. However, rumors have already reached his eldest son, and because of the inflammatory things that his son says, the rumors are that Fania has had an abortion and also attempted suicide, which I'm pretty sure are not true, though I guess we only get Coleman's point of view, right? So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess we can't confirm those things are untrue, but Coleman certainly doesn't know about those things, mm-hmm. is how I would put it. Uh, I don't know if the narrative will come back later and confirm those things. It seems unlikely, given how much time they seem to spend together, but also, who knows? Like, Fawny is kind of a mystery to us. Right. <laughs> um but anyway, it seems fake. It seems just like rumors. But anyway, it really incenses Coleman. He goes off on his son and, you know, is, is furious again about the whole thing and won't let it go. Um, there's also a few more memories about his past and the secret he's burdened himself with. He, like, dwells on a memory in particular, like, when he's fresh out of the Navy, he tries to go to a segregated 
a whorehouse, like a whites only whorehouse, and is tossed out violently and kind of like breaks his wrist and has to kind of slink away and hide. Um, the shame and fear from that incident has stayed with him. The shame and fear of just kind of the secret staying over his entire life and kind of haunting him is it's sort of this omnipresent thing in his life. And the chapter concludes by switching back. So that's kind of more we learn about Coleman. We conclude this chapter with is it Delphine Lou? Is that the French? Yeah. Okay, Delphine Lou's backstory. So we have ignored this so far. It's, it seemed minor to me, but it's obviously going to be critical because she comes back such a way in this section. So in the first part, it's revealed that he gets a note, a secret handwritten note from someone kind of blaming him and saying, everybody knows you're doing this shameful affair. He figures out pretty quickly it's her. He has a his lawyer have a handwriter analyst um, confirm that it's her handwriting, which is to the, the extremities to which he's going to go to, clean, you know, clear his name and fight this kind of indignity he feels he has against him. Anyway, so then we get Delphine Lou's backstory. She's born into the French elite and is raised to be a private school intellectual and it gets the finest French education, etc. as a burgeoning intellectual. She's at this point an accomplished academic and very self-assured, fairly confident and assertive in, in her own way. She gets a job at Athena College out of Yale and Coleman is the one who hires her. So we get a little bit of their back and forth and some arguments that they've had working together. Ultimately, it ends with her point of view about Coleman's downfall and kind of how he behaved, the things he said and did. And then we also see that she sends him that vaguely threatening letter um, and, you know, seemingly incensed Coleman with it. So we get a little bit about her, too. Anything I skipped over or missed from part three? Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't think so. I think um, just that narratively he played a little bit with, like, we get um, uh, Delphine's voice her perspective actually it's like uh, written in the personal narrative there and um we also get fania's perspective with the crows like the again it's it's stream of consciousness but it is told from her perspective so there's three different narrative structures here in one, one yeah part. yeah it's definitely novelistic it's at its most novelistic kind of most daring in those moments too i found do you want to jump into Fania's moment then first? I mean, for yeah. being, she, she's so critical of the story, and I don't think the story is going to give us much of her point of view on purpose. It's just going to tease this out and let us yeah. piece things together. Um, and I found it really, it was kind of like the part with her ex-husband in the Vietnam flashback. I found it really effective and engrossing. Mm-hmm. And, maybe, and that's just simple contrast. It could be that I'm you know, a little susceptible to just like, ah, how daring, how interesting. How do you read it? Any quotes to take away? or? Um, so looking at the actual structure itself, um, it's really interesting because we have two female perspectives. We've got Delphine and we've got Fania, who, and the two perspectives are written completely differently like Fania's is in the stream of consciousness which is actually very much similar to her ex-husband's the structure of her ex-husband's like no paragraph breaks it's stream of consciousness the language being used is not necessarily overly academic and both um Fania and the ex-husband their ideas are deep in a way right they they have some really interesting insights but the way that they express those insights is just a very like basic like statement like this is what this is this is what this is contrasted with coleman and delphine's um narratives which are just 
big words everywhere and mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's couched in academic you know it has the comfort they slip on the comfortable academic kind of register you know right <laughs> and what's interesting too about delphine and coleman's narratives is that their their insights are not about themselves um but mm-hmm. they they try to kind of like deflect Right there, like Delphine is like, oh, well, the reason it's all analysis heavy and assumption heavy. Uh, The reason that he is with Fania is because he's actually obsessed with me. And Fania is is the straw man for me, even though Fania is the opposite of me. And the only real thing that we have in common is that we're women and uh, stuff like Mm -hmm. that. So I just thought that was interesting that the narrative structure and the, the thoughts that are expressed in 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 the the perspectives of Fania and her ex-husband are just so different from Delphine and Coleman not just structurally but also the content is just so vastly different yeah the definitely the syntax is the thing that pops and you're right though it, the, the thoughts are so much less categorized and organized and that they, they don't come not every sentence has to be a 10 line precision critique of American society or whatever, like right. it often does with Coleman. It doesn't always have to... The other thing is he he's so comfortable in his register, the classics, going broad and making those illusions and those connections. So it's like he can easily compare his situation to... He brings up classics somewhat often. That's not really frequent, but he does it often enough to remind you right. <laughs> that like, oh yes, I can... I'm in, a, I'm in the grand tradition of Greek tragedy while these people just think you know, in a much less insightful way. Right. Um, do you... Uh, so her section's interesting. Let me let me just pose this very basic thing, and this might be a failure of Roth or an accomplishment of Roth. Fania obviously is not the main character, and she's not getting main character time. Do you think her segment then, because although the writing clearly shifts to kind of adapt to her mindset, it, has any person... Like who isn't a novelist ever thought this deeply about something in their everyday life? Like it's it's both of course working because it shows like yes she thinks differently than than the main character than Coleman, but also at the same time it's like is this, do you think this is what janitors on their during their break are thinking about? Like it's it is also profound. So mm-hmm. it's just it's like I've had lunch breaks you know at my job and I'm certainly not thinking like this. I'll tell you that. <laughs> like <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe I should think more deep. Maybe I should have these these much more intensive contemplations but it yeah so it's interesting right because it's like well roth can't help himself even when he wants to show that a character is i don't think he means for her to seem inferior but he definitely wants to show that she's has this much different way of approaching the world than coleman um but it's still like hyper intellectual to me and so it's like yeah roth can't help himself like i don't i don't think he's even able to (laughs) to kind of present something like in a friendly innocent simple way it all has to be it all has to be spiraling for him or something it's yeah i don't know so is it successful or is it a failure it's weird because i really liked it of course but at the same time i finished it thinking like well that's not what i would do at lunch i'll tell you that like (laughs) during my the nine to five job i've have you know yeah it's um i don't know that it would be realistic but i think that it's effective in that it earlier Roth mentioned that she's um, illiterate and not because she can't read Mm -hmm. but she did know how to read and then she like forgot how to read and like doesn't try and has zero interest in reading like 
I don't know how you forget to read, but apparently you you can, um, at least in this mm-hmm. novel. And so, and and that actually prompts Coleman initially to think about breaking up with her, and then she calls him out on it, like, "Oh yeah, you think that you're better than me because I don't read." Um, so. Um, Anyway, so that that contrast of like, yeah, she can't read, but that doesn't mean that she's not full of thoughtfulness and, and and other insights and stuff. So I think that the her her narrative is interesting in really highlighting that that you don't have to be an academic in order to have these uh, deep deep thoughts. Same with the ex husband, right? Like his insights into the failures of of um of our society and taking care of our veterans and making sure that they can reintegrate into um civilian society like i think that's you know even though they're not academics and they're not voices that we hear a whole lot they're still right you know they have valid ideas and this book has reconfirmed my thought which is that any art any artist in any medium and I'm going wide here, going wide and controversial, should never be allowed to make, to write a book about their own art form ever. It should never be allowed. <laughs> and I've really, like I said, I've really slipped into this book well and have enjoyed it in huge swaths. But like this, we should disallow this. Movies should never be about movies ever. We mm. got to get over this. And books should never be about writing books. I'm sorry. I know you. I know novelists live very limited lives and how they like spend their day to day activities. But like we can't. We just cannot do this. I. Mm. <laughs> we just need to like take a hundred years off and see what else we can talk about or like produce. You know, it's <laughs> it's tough though. I know how creativity gets gets there though. You feel very insulated and like you kind of have to talk about it because the process is maddening. But still, it's. Like, yeah, this is why if you're a college professor, you should never be able to write about being a professor. Anyway, um, she has a couple of great quotes. Her section ends with, I'm a crow. I know it. I know it. So, you know, she's feeling she's feeling herself. She's doing just fine. Um, though before that it says, where do I go and what do I do and how the fuck do I get out? So she's, you know, she's conflicted, too. There's a long segment in her bit where she talks about like the way that crows can trick people into opening their nuts and they talk about um, no crow goes hungry in all this world never without a meal if something rots you don't see the crow run away if there's death they're there something's dead they come by and get it I like that I like that a lot eat that raccoon no matter what wait for the truck to come crack open the spine and then you go back in there and suck up all the good stuff it takes to lift that beautiful black carcass off the ground sure they have their strange behavior like anything else I've seen them up in those trees gathered all together talking talking all together and something's going on but what it is I'll never know there's some powerful arrangement there so she just has yeah obviously she's a bit more practical and pragmatic she yep. she too thinks in the simplified kind of brutal terms of the Greeks and the Romans you know like mm-hmm. we just need to you know just get her get her reading I suppose or don't it's she's doing well she's fine yeah <laughs> she's certainly not thinking about hot young janitors co-workers and pizza so <laughs> I think that's of course the, the to me that's the great ironic twist I think intended I, I hope intended is that yeah it's like her presence there it drives Coleman insane and you know drives him to reject her and try and break it off but of course she's just thinking about crows which is great I thought that was very funny it's also interesting to me. I, I think that she's meant to be kind of a foil almost for Coleman because she's so opposite. He's He rejects yeah. his community. He rejects um, all this stuff for personal freedom, whereas uh, Fania is like survival, 
But also, okay. I, I'm kind of lonely. I wish that, like the crows, they have this community where they're all really tight-knit and, and, and exclusive in some ways. And she just kind of wants to... She thinks that's nice, and she would love to have that, too. So it's it's the opposite of Coleman in that way, like personal freedom versus being a, having a sense of community, where Fania does have total personal freedom, right? Nothing is holding her down, but she's kind of wishing for something more, and Coleman is the opposite. Yeah, totally. One more thing I think we have to do before we... I know this episode is going to be a long one, but I, I suppose it's just how it goes. It's what Roth has inspired. It's what Roth has wrought... <laughs> I think we have to take a look from from oh, see I already forgot I know her last name is Rue Delphine from Delphine's mm-hmm. perspective because it's the only time that we really get a sense of Coleman as we get a sense of him as an intellectual but not a, a, of him as a workplace you know as a coworker right <laughs> um, obviously his accomplishments are listed in part one sort of but there's never. I mean, and there's a ton of reflection about it, but like we don't get direct interaction except in this section. And so a couple quotes from him when they're arguing. So he, he was teaching a couple of Greek, I think, tragedies. I'd never heard of either, to be honest. I've read a few, but obviously not a classics professor. Mm-hmm. But he'd read a few that one of his students didn't like. She thought they were offensive to women was how she framed it. And he just like cannot take this. He, he's like infuriated by that, by that point of view. Mm-hmm. And so... A couple of quotes from his, because he goes off on a long, you know, argument against Delphine, and this is some of the stuff he says. He says, providing the most naive readers with a feminist perspective on Euripides is one of the best ways you could devise to close down their thinking before it's even had a chance to begin to demolish a single one of their brainless likes. I have trouble believing that an educated woman coming from a French academic background like your own believes there is a feminist perspective on Euripides that isn't simply foolishness. Have you really been edified in so short a time, or is this just old-fashioned careerism grounded right now in the fear of one's own feminist colleagues? Because if it is just careerism, it's fine with me it's human and i understand but if it's an intellectual commitment to this idiocy then i'm mystified because you're not an idiot because you know better because in france surely nobody from the whatever school she went to i don't even know how to pronounce it would dream of taking this stuff seriously or would they to read two plays like hippolytus and Alicestis? Alicestis? I've never heard of either of these. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to take more classics. Coleman would just, you know, he'd hate me. Um, <laughs> then to listen to a week of classroom discussion on each, then have nothing to say about either of them other than they are degrading to women isn't perspective for Christ's sake. It's mouthwash. It's just the latest mouthwash. And she says, Elaine is a student. She's 20 years old. She's learning. Sentimentalizing one student's ill becomes you, my dear. Take them seriously. Elaine is not learning. She's parroting. It's why she ran to you directly is because it's more than likely she's it's you that she's parroting and then you know she counters that too so what do you think of his kind of diatribe here we get it because you know we only get a sense of how he responded to the racist language scandal um and we don't we don't i think see quite this much dialogue we don't see him arguing it quite as openly i mean he says a lot about it in the first part i'm not trying to ignore that mm-hmm. but what do you what do you think of this exchange what do you think of him as an academic as a co-worker as a you know intellectual how do you read it uh, so he's very condescending. I, I saw it as him being condescending. He's like, well, I'm the expert here, da-da-da-da-da. He could have said it definitely in a nicer way. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, I understand his point, the idea of, like, you know, it's context. Like, these plays are not meant necessarily to be 
<laughs> flattering to women. <laughs> it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a different yeah. context. It's a different time. It's a different culture. Um, so I, I, I understand his point of view, but I also understand her point of view where it's like you have to open the dialogue with these students and you can still have a feminist reading of something. You just talk about like, you know, even with like the classics, you can have a feminist discussion about it. It's not... Yeah, right. Terrible. But yeah, I just, I, the way that I interpreted that, it was like, yeah, he's condescending. I already knew that. <laughs> I already knew that he was right, kind of right. condescending. So, yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I think the only interesting thing I think it, it clarified for me was just the, not, yeah, not the condescension, which is definitely true. It's how he sneaks in the deers and everything. Yeah. Um, and like, it, it, you know, like it gets personal with her own background and that kind of like weird, those kind of weird evo- um, invoke invocations, I guess. Mm-hmm. But to me, the interesting thing, of course, was just his approach to like what it, what academics should be or, you know, what, what learning should be like or even like the goal of college or whatever. I, I do kind of agree with him in the sense I guess I like broadly agree with him, but of course, like the delivery is all wrong and he's wrong the way he's doing it or something. Something is, was kind of my broad takeaway where it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, if a person, not all lenses fit every story or culture or moment or whatever, but it's like, you know, feel free to give it a go. Of course. It's like not every, not every feminist or Marxist or classist or, uh, you know, whatever uh, French, whatever, pull 10 French philosophers uh, readings out of, you know, utilitarian, Randian, like, uh, they're not all going to work on everything and they're not all going to be interesting. And that's to me the thing that makes the reading fun, though, is because, right. like, see which ones fits and see what jumps out and see how, what you can do with it. I mean, that's to me the joy of the reading. Like, yeah, forcing something to fit is that's kind of what makes it this all feel broken so i, I kind of get his reaction which is like oh your reading is shallow and like just saying you don't like something isn't a reading really right. i mean if you want to interrogate that go for it but you're going to learn more about yourself than the work and it's like why can't we just do the work first but anyway so i, I get all that but yeah of course i think it was just important to see his tone you know his how he approaches the his colleagues and her and he's and he, i didn't read the quotes but he like personally assaults her even more um, insults her even more after that so it's you know it doesn't make him seem more even headed or level headed or anything so yeah and and it, i think it's also delphine is painting him as a misogynist in this exchange right he doesn't mm-hmm. want to talk about feminism he is um disregarding a female student and a female coworker and being condescending to to women specifically and then mm-hmm. that's how she then thinks of like oh he he's a misogynist who's who's on a power trip yeah yeah and it's i mean the it's it's funny too because roth does he does indignant smart people well you know it might be his best best bits of writing so i like like calling it mouthwash is i think of quite enjoyable like metaphor to take something down you know i was like oh that's again i don't fully agree that like (laughs) I, i don't fully agree that the the existence of feminist literary criticism is mouth like that's where i'm like you're being absurd man like what are you talking but of course like reading every book that way will not always bring out inspiring or even interesting results like again that's just not how it's not how stories go stories don't because stories can't encapsulate all things <laughs> you have to try and like work them with what they are and like see what's there so i don't yeah like i again it just i don't know i, I guess i admire the story in, in the broadest terms of like i don't know if i empathize with him i, I don't think i do 
because his tone and his approach is just so off. It's also not how I like to deal with like learning or, or whatever. Yeah. But at the same time, if somebody offers up, you know, I, I don't know. The other thing is the the fact that it was in a discussion and not a paper is weird to me because it's like, well, challenge her to write a good paper out of it then. Like, yeah, if she has nothing to say in the class, like, okay, you don't have to demean her about it, but then be like, well, that's why we have pay. Like, it's not like everything is discussion. Like, take time with it, you know? Go think about it. Go write something interesting. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it just seems odd to me. He just, yeah, he just comes off as such a boorish person. Um which, you know, it's tough. It's tough to agree with boorish people. I, I guess that's why I also sh- kind of slink back where I'm like, I don't know. I, I see what he's saying, but also I don't want to agree with him. <laughs> um, but I think Roth does that well, I guess, it, to bring it out to the to the construction of the text and the story. I think Coleman has, I don't know. What's your fi- Any final readings on Coleman we, before we do our final segments? Uh, nope, that's pretty much it. He's, he's being depicted as like a misogynist power hungry racist who is um all about asserting his dominance over uh women who are powerless in general yeah well (laughs) delphine no longer she's the chair of you know she's the chair she's got the chair power Mm -hmm. (laughs) reminds me of uh, netflix made a show about academia called the chair last year it has Sandra Oh in it. She I don't was really, think that I've it's, seen that. It was solid. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. I, not like the best drama I saw that year or something, but it was. it's good. It was a good show. And I think she was pretty strong in it, too. Sandra O oh is the lead. She's the chair, as it Ooh. were. <laughs> um, I like Sandra O. Oh. oh, yeah. She's tremendous. So, yeah. Easy, easy to root for her. Okay. Final thoughts on Coleman out of the way. Let's jump to our ending segments then. Again, we've gone on a bit long, but this, these episodes might just be. It's, it's a story packed with things, after all. Ideas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, let's do our list first. At the end of our Part 1 book clubs, we always like to make a list, which is we just do a top three of some specific thing we come up with. I set this one up, so I guess I'll start it off. We're going to do the top three ways that we are have been reminded or moments that we've been reminded that the main character is a college professor because Roth seems very comfortable writing in the voice of someone who has spent their whole life in books. This is his, <laughs> this is how he wants to write characters. So it's, it's been a good reminder throughout that like, oh yes, yeah, we know Coleman, his uh, intellectual credentials are, are strong. We get it. And we are reminded, um, the, the rumors about Fania and kind of how he reacts to them was a moment. This is my number three I'll go with because mm-hmm. he, the way he goes off on the phone with his son, it just feels so dislike or not dislike, unlike how any argument in real life would go. But it, of course, with Roth writing him, it allows him to like inject these like intellectual little threads into his anger. <laughs> um, yep. He responds on the phone and says, uh, oh, I like that. I do wonder who came up with the suicide attempt. Is it because of the abortion that she attempts the suicide? Let's get straight this melodrama that Lisa got from her Athena friends because she doesn't want the abortion because the abortion is imposed on her. I see. I see the cruelty. A mother who has lost two little children in a fire turns up pregnant by her lover. Ecstasy, a new life, another chance, a new child to replace the dead ones. But the lover, no, he says, and drags her by the hair to the abortionist. And then, of course, having worked his will on her, takes the naked, bleeding body and then it says by this time Jeff had hung up so it's just yeah it's a way for him to cast himself into a Greek tragedy um, Mm -hmm. which he you know is wont to do at all times so at that moment to me was like oh yeah this is Roth likes writing a character who can spout in this way (laughs) oh yeah yeah that's a good example (laughs) yeah yeah what's your number three 
Mine is uh, when he analyzes why Fania is illiterate. He has a whole understanding of her choice to be illiterate mm-hmm. in the face of her the the context of her of her history and her mindset, which is just about survival and pleasure. You know, the yeah. cow. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. how did you? Because this book opens. Another reason I could see this book turning someone off right away. Because it does really fascinating things throughout, but like one of the early longer bits of the narrative is him and his pretty intellectual neighbor just talking about this woman. In you know she's not there, of course, and it's a lot of psychoanalysis of her. It's a lot of him like trying to he like thinks he can read her and he like gets where she's at in life, which I could see mm. being very. I mean, we didn't go harsh into criticizing that part or that choice narratively to kind of organize it that way. But it's, yeah, it's just two older men trying to like figure her out. And it's, I, th- I think at times it's, I'm hoping anyway, Roth intended this, but I think it's meant to be a bit awkward and uneven and like, you yeah. know, again, misogynist in, in a way. But if you're reading that as like these two geniuses really get human nature, then I could see it being like, well, this is off putting. Like this is a awkward, <laughs> like why are, this is the book I have to read. <laughs> but I, yep. I think it's a little more complicated than that. Thankfully. Um, yeah. Uh, my number two, it's a simple one, and it's not a quote. It's just the fact that he refers to Fania repeatedly as his voluptuous or voluptus, yeah. <laughs> which is a minor. I had to Google that. I think he explains it, too. But it's like a pretty minor goddess, or it's a pretty minor reference to Greek or Roman mythology. So it's not even like he could settle on one of the really common gods or goddesses that, you know, he could have called her as Aphrodite or so, something like really blatant. But instead, of course, has to, one, hit on one that in the language, I think, has a stronger connotation with voluptuous mm-hmm. but then also it's you know not um not one that a common person would know you know not a reference right. we would get did you know who that was before he started referencing her as that nope i had to look it up too yeah, yeah she's the the goddess of sensual pleasure okay yeah fitting fittingly enough given all of his descriptions uh what's your number two <laughs> mine is um his analysis of stina's poem this is before he's oh, even yeah a professor so Stina writes him a poem and he's like going off on like he's looking at the words and he even misinterprets one of the words right um yeah as a racist term uh, but, and it's just another yeah. word it's just a handwriting issue <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah it's uh, uh the back of his neck but the neck is interpreted as a different word but he goes into this whole analysis of each part of the poem and I was like yeah that is such a an academic thing to do somebody yeah. writes this like really sweet poem and you're just over analyzing the diction and well what is the symbolism here and I was like yeah, yeah. no ver- no verb goes unturned over you gotta turn over exactly. every verb yeah that's actually a, an amazing that might even be that should have been my number one it's not that's a great pick that's true that's a very <laughs> professorial thing to do before he's even appointed my number mm-hmm. one though is the speech he gives when he fires his lawyer who we really never brought up in our summaries but he has a lawyer who like tries to give him advice to turn to get away from the affair and get out of there um, who is also the lawyer in his own kind of confident cocky young way pretty condescending to you know this elderly yep. man he's like you know kind of ber- not berating but being a little condescending to but the the final um the firing is the is the moment where i thought yeah roth just loves this shit he just because lo- at this time i don't know how old he was and he wrote this obviously i don't know if roth was of this person's age but it's just like it's clear that he wants to give this older man whose life is in turmoil like a chance to punch back a bit <laughs> and i think he just enjoys this these intellectual wordplay 
But anyway, this is his firing speech. He says, you're a vocal master of extraordinary loquaciousness, Nelson. So press, see, I don't even know this word. Perspicacious? <laughs> what is that? Yeah. Perspicacious? I have no idea. <laughs> um, so perspicacious, so fluent, a vocal master of the endless, ostentatiously over-elaborate sentence, and so rich with contempt for every last human problem you've ever had to face. And then he concludes, I never again want to hear that self-admiring voice of yours or see your smug fucking lily white face which is the insult that was used against him as a, uh, as a black man yeah to kind of insult his his abandonment of his own race uh, or of, of his background of his history and yeah it's just like you know it, it's pretty clippy pretty brief he gets a curse in there just because you have to just to make it clear that you're the hate's in there the, the the vitriol's in there but i just yeah that was a moment where i just thought yeah roth loves he loved writing that you can just tell it's yeah <laughs> it's a chance for this professor to just get a swing in after being berated for two pages Mm-hmm. Uh, and even while he's being berated, he's like, okay, let me analyze why the lawyer is talking yeah. to me this way. And like, he's very high-minded about it. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> it's true that that is also from his, we don't get the lawyer's point of view until after, where he's sort yeah. of, you know, he's sort of stunned by it and talks with his wife about it. Um, so that was my number one, because it just felt very... It felt like if you push a professor into a corner, that's the kind of punch they can take or the kind of punch they can throw. (laughs) Um, How about for you? What's the number one reminder for you? Uh, For me, it was when he was talking or thinking about like all the things that he had given his children. He's like feeling betrayed that they are not on his side. And he's like, all the things that I gave to my kid like encyclopedias i taught them how to read i taught them Mm -hmm. to scrutinize language (laughs) and like (laughs) all these academic aspects um there's no mention of like emotional support or anything like that yeah (laughs) yeah i was like yeah yeah that's very very much like a the professorial parent there (laughs) yeah it is pretty wild and you know of all the things we underanalyzed which i'm sure there are millions this is how books like this go um Probably his relationship with his kids is the one that we underlook the most, wouldn't you say? Have we overlooked yeah, it? Because sure. we at least tried to pick up on those narrative twists with Fania and her ex. Like you know, we're, we're doing our best to pick up on the interesting bits. But yeah, his relationship with his kids is really fraught, and we didn't we didn't really dig into it. But that's okay. Yeah, yeah. a really great pick. It's um, you know, at least not all of his kids hate him. He's got that going for him. So. Mm-hmm. Let's do our final segment that I made. We'll clock in under an hour and a half. That's a that's a solid. That's a good runtime. <laughs> um, our final segment on part one book clubs is always please continue make it stop, which is just what it sounds like. We're each going to pick one element of the story or writing that we want to continue and one that we want to stop. Do you want to go first? I think your make it strong stop is stronger than mine. Sure. Yeah. So my make it stop is although I'll say that I both like and dislike this okay the density of his sentences Mm -hmm. so some of the density i understand why he does it but sometimes it's just like overwhelming sometimes right i understand that this is the point of view of an academic that he's extremely intelligent that he's a master of the english language but sometimes it just feels like i'm i'm reading a philosophical essay it's almost like it's like the novel version of a foucault discussion Right. Mm. And there's times where Mm -hmm. I have to like reread some sentences several times just to make sure that I I understood 
most of what he's trying to say. <laughs> no, definitely. It's I can't make excuses for it. All I can say is that apparently all I need for those kinds of for those kinds of intellectual pursuits to work though is a story wrapped around it because this is just it just mm-hmm. flows when it flows for me now granted again yeah. I there's definitely been moments where my attentiveness is, has plummeted too but on the whole I've been yeah. shocked at how much I can read this <laughs> or like how readable it is or how much I like to engage with it while reading um, mm-hmm. yeah no it's it's strange I, I really can't explain it again that would be its own episode for me to like look at all the little syntactic moments to think how come I um how come I am vibing with this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, that's a good one, though. My my make it stop is more structural, but I think the interludes could be shorter with the backstories. Like when it jumps way back in time or just kind of randomly cuts. I Part two, again, just didn't work for me on the whole because I thought it was a bit overly long then again. I, can you fault the narrative for taking that much time? It's kind of it's kind of the whole twist of his identity, and so I get it. You know, I can't fault it for that. But I, the only thing I wish is that, like, let's propel the story forward. There's enough. There's enough characters in play now. There's enough conflict. There's enough drama. There's enough like meat on the bone. Like, I think we can just move forward instead of backwards at this point. That's um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess I'm the the simpleton reading for the a plot, but yeah, that, that's the only moment where I felt really bogged down. Everything else, you yeah. know, I can do a page or two. Of, of him, you know, veering off on some reflection and getting a little bit into his past or any character's past, but the entire chapter dedicated to it, I was like, hey, I not didn't enjoy that as much, I guess. Yeah. Also, the other two uh, parts, they had uh, different perspectives that we could take a break from. Yeah, which too. is great. And so we've exactly, but but the second one is just his his teenage and early 20s perspective. I will say I read the opening part in fear, thinking that the whole narrative would be from the perspective of his novelist neighbor. And again, it's just me with that bias of, I don't want to read a book about a person who writes books. Please (laughs) give me anyone else's point of view. Like, I get it. I know. But also, let's just do so. And so the fact that it keeps switching is extremely rewarding. That's my, oh, that's my please continue. I I only just connected that. Yeah, I think like, I I think the five to six page versions to is really working for me it's very bold obviously it's novelistic too to to be so omniscient and just jump around and i do think these moments will be essential because obviously these characters are all heading for some kind of clash also did i misread a sentence or two in there or did they already say that he and fawnia die i feel like there was a clear yeah okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know he's doing the greek tragedy thing of like setting it's you know they, they used to spoil stories at the beginning in a way and so like let the chorus tell you about it or whatever but yeah so i obviously they're heading for a huge tragedy and some kind of collapse and so it's just like yeah keep giving me little snippets of other characters um do i need a ton more like do i need a chapter or 50 pages of fawny i don't know i think maybe if we get to the ending and all we're left with was the crows bit in a sense it gives you a lot to overread, or you can really pick it apart then and in a sense being withholding in that way is rewarding <laughs> but we'll see we'll see what other characters get their get their moments so i've enjoyed yeah. that a ton me too. Yeah. yeah. Um, my please continue is I, I like the motifs and themes that he's playing with. So I really like the ideas of identity, um, society and social norms, the idea of freedom within a society and the idea of um, expectations, whether it's social expectations or the expectations of, of your family. I, I think that those are all really interesting aspects of the novel that he's playing with. And it hasn't fully 
none of them yet have been fully explored and and it's just a, a nice open-ended there's just so many things that he wants to tackle that he's leaving open until i presume the end yeah so. yeah and we'll see what kind of collapse and tragedy greek tragedy this is heading for fitting enough exactly perhaps i should look up those allusions to the plays he like was so mad at the student for for reading as a feminist i because maybe those will matter maybe those plot lines are are gonna come up or something i don't know because oh yeah those probably. two those two those two missed me completely i just had never encountered those plays so interesting okay any final thoughts on the human stain first half of the well little past first half of the book nope i'm good yeah an odd it's an odd one because i i couldn't get away from you know we don't run from our feelings i hated every second in the midnight library and owned it and this is it's just been so (laughs) weird because i know i i flip the page and i see there's only one paragraph and even i shudder but i it's just very readable to me i don't know i guess it's my curse that this is like the kind of like voice tone and intellect register that i find comfortable for novels i don't know (laughs) it is what it is um Okay, and no final thoughts, though? Nope. Excellent. Well, listeners, if you made it all the way with us through this episode, we appreciate it as always. Hope you enjoyed the discussion about the book. We'll be back next week, Friday. Our podcast book clubs come out on Fridays, unless I forget to hit publish, which I did last week. But for the most part, oh. they come. I know I posted both of them though. They're they're up and everything. I just I've like saved the draft and didn't publish it, which is funny. Anyway, they usually come out every Friday, so take a look at us uh, on Fridays for book clubs. And then our recommendations for these books come up on Mondays every other Monday. So check us out for those. If you're up for part two come back then again thanks for listening follow us on instagram and facebook at the lightly literary podcast which is all one word and as always until next time we'll see you between the pages 